Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, it's being called a baby bust, a birth dearth. It's the expectation that the pandemic will intensify the U.S.'s already declining birth rate. California is reporting a 10% decline in births in 2020 compared to the year before. We'll look at how the pandemic is driving down birth rates and why researchers are worried about it. And we want to hear from you. Has the pandemic affected your family planning decisions? Tell us why after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For some, the global pandemic inspired them to try for a child, feeling that life was short and precious. But more often than expected, people chose the other route, delaying becoming parents or deciding to remain child-free for good. Researchers say U.S. births declined by nearly 4% in 2020. Some predict it will drop by up to 8% in 2021, which translates to some 300,000 fewer babies than would otherwise be expected. We look at what's driving this and why it matters in this hour of forum. Joining me, Eliana Doctorman, staff writer for Time, who wrote an October piece titled Women Are Deciding Not to Have Babies Because of the Pandemic. That's bad for all of us. And Dr. Casey Buckles, an associate professor of economics and concurrent professor of gender studies at the University of Notre Dame. Thanks to both of you for joining us. And uh, Dr. Buckles, I'll start with you. What are the data we have so far on birth rates during 2020? Yes, well, thanks for having me. Um, You know, you've already hit some of the big numbers that I think are getting a lot of attention. This predicted drop in births in 2021 The projections I've seen range from between 300 and 500,000 fewer births in 2021 than we otherwise would have expected. Hmm. And that's based on what we've seen happen after previous pandemics, like the 1918 flu pandemic, and also on what we know usually happens during an economic downturn, like the one that was triggered by COVID-19. But if we talk about the early evidence on whether this is happening or not, I think it really supports those projections. So just a couple of pieces of that, you know, there's a survey by the Guttmacher Institute where 34% of women said that they had either delayed plans to have a child or decreased the number of kids they expected to have as a result of the pandemic. We've seen decreases in Google searches for terms related to pregnancy, and then maybe most convincingly, You know, we know that births in December of 2020 
appear to be down about 8% over the previous December. And, you know, that's the first month in which we would have expected full-term bursts that were conceived during the pandemic to be realized. Uh, interesting. And Eliana Doctorman, you've reported additional stats on birth control, et cetera, that fill out the picture even more. Can you share those with us? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that the big piece that is important to consider is the fact that most of these women are being forced to choose between working and having a baby because it's not possible right now. And so I actually think the most important stat is that 2.3 million women have dropped out of the labor force um, since February of 2020. And one in three of those cites childcare reasons. So it's easy to see why somebody who's considering having a child or who already has children and is overwhelmed and might not even be able to put food on the table um, would decide not to have a baby right now during this pandemic when there's economic uh, problems Mm. in many families. And can you talk about how these stats, these trends bear out demographically, especially among parents of color? Eliana Doctorman. Oh, thank you. Uh, I actually do not have um, particular um, survey. I mean, I have found that lower income women were more likely than other women to want to put up having put off having a baby, especially black women and Latina women. Um, But that is largely, again, uh, there's a correlation there between income and the decision to not have a child. Mm, Yes. And so, Casey Buckles, first, if you have any other information about how this bears out demographically and also maybe other categories, say, among married or single people, I'd be curious to know that. And uh, if you could comment on Eliana's point that a lot of birth declines actually go hand in hand with economic declines as well? Yes, I'm happy to speak to both of those things. So one thing that's important to keep in mind is that this anticipated pandemic baby bust is happening on top of an already sustained decline in fertility that we've seen since about 2007. But when we look at that sustained decline, so it's about 16% uh, drop in the birth rate between 2007 and 2019. When we dig into that a little bit deeper, though, we see that that has not been experienced equally by all groups. So those declines have been greatest for women under age 30. Hmm. Um, They've been greater for unmarried women, for Hispanic women, Native women, um, and happening at about the same rate for Black and white women. So I would expect a lot of that to also show up in terms of the pandemic baby bust. And for some of the reasons that Eliana was mentioning, that you know, if the reason you're considering not having a child is because of economic distress, we would expect that to be felt more acutely by more disadvantaged groups. And if you think about the, the big underlying reasons for the pandemic baby bust that we're anticipating, the economic conditions are a really big part of that. We historically see decreases in fertility during economic downturns, and that has certainly happened as a result of this pandemic. There's also just a lot of uncertainty. And so, you know, people are less like, there's a saying that children are the ultimate vote of confidence in the future. Hmm. So it's not surprising that when there's so much uncertainty about what the future will bring, that we'll see fewer children being born. And then there's one more thing that I want to point out here that is a a potential explanation for why we'll see fewer births next year. And that's that I expect to see a big decline in unintended births. You know, about 40% of births in the U.S. are unintended. 
that's not to say that they're unwanted, but they're not the result of a deliberate action to try to conceive. And this year has limited our social interactions so much with yes. bars closed, schools closed, people not going over to one another's houses or not starting new relationships. So I think that big decrease in social interactions will also likely mean fewer pregnancies and fewer births. Such an interesting point. Again, Casey Buckles is Associate Professor of Economics and Concurrent Professor of Gender Studies at the University of Notre Dame. And Eliana Doctorman is also with us, a staff writer for Time. And you, our listeners, are with us as well. Curious, did you delay or decide not to have kids this past year? Why? Or perhaps your family planning decisions went in the other direction. Tell us why as well. How has the pandemic either helped or hurt your ability to raise kids or altered the way you think about raising kids? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Eliana Doctorman, I'm struck by Casey Buckle saying that having babies is the ultimate vote of confidence in the future because it reminds me of something you wrote in your piece about how a declining birth rate is usually an expression of despair. <laughs> and so they kind of go along the same lines. Yes, they definitely do. And that was actually a quote from Dowell Myers, who's a demographer, who said, yes, that uh, it was a barometer of despair. You know, the women that I spoke to, I spoke to a teacher in Ohio who is in a circumstance where she was teaching part-time in-person, part-time at home, and she had planned on having a baby that year and was very excited to have her second child that year. But once it became clear that not only would she have to come into work and risk possibly getting COVID while she was pregnant, but also that if she took time off to have a baby, there might not be a job there for her when she got back because of all of the volatility that was happening in education at the beginning of the year with teachers getting laid off, that she decided it just wasn't possible for her family to grow at that time. And she doesn't really know when that's going to be possible. I think that, you know, Casey is absolutely right. We do not see an end in sight to this right now, even if we see vaccines ramping up. There's not a distinct point at which parents are able to say, okay, this is the time. And I think that that uncertainty certainly is part of the reason that's driving this. And it is rather depressing. Well, Noel tweets, as part of the baby bus generation of the 1960s, I saw benefits like we did not have that mad scramble of competitive college applications because there were fewer of us. This new bust could be a good thing, not to mention the environmental benefits. Also, with the she session, this brought to light the uneven household labor sharing of child care and household maintenance and no government support for families, no support of child care centers. Need I go on? This is a birth strike. She raises so many things, um, Eliana Doctorman, that you also touch on in your piece. And of course, you mentioned earlier just the the lopsided, even as as much progress as we'd like to believe that we've made in terms of gender parity, uh, how much that it does still fall on, you know, typically people identify as women as sharing childcare and household responsibilities, that, that the sharing isn't so even after all, that it does fall more heavily on them. But all of this said, I, I would like you and Casey to point out why this is concerning. Like, what are the long-term impacts of a declining birth rate? Why does this have economists and demographers and others worried, Eliana Doctorman? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of things there. So first of all, to address the environmental standpoint, I mean, while it would be nice if the earth had fewer people, 
that's a little bit like laying individual blame on people for not recycling as well as they should be when corporations and governments are really the ones who could change the course of climate change easily, more swiftly, and in much bigger ways than an individual. So, you know, while we're talking about hundreds of thousands of fewer births, relatively speaking, that's not going to save the environment, right? Um, There are bigger concerns economically, too. Uh, Currently, our social security system, if we have fewer people, then we have fewer people contributing to social security. So that's a problem. Um, If we have a not that many people on the younger side of things, not as many people who are zero to 20 as we do elderly people who rely on the systems that our government has set up that we pay into in order to help people in their retirement years, then that means that that system becomes overstrained. And when this younger generation becomes older, they're in trouble. It means fewer people who are applying to colleges for an education system that's been structured for a certain number of people, means fewer people in the military. So our systems have just been set up to sort of assume a certain number of people will be entering them every year, whether that's paying into them or actually participating in them. Mm. And now those systems could crumble if they're just not enough people to support them, economically speaking. Casey Buckles, we're coming up on a break, but is there anything you would add to what Eliana, Dr. May pointed out in terms of long-term impacts? Yes. Well, I think she hit on some of the most important ones in terms of thinking of children as future productive members of society. You know, in addition to supporting programs like Social Security and our military, you know, we value the contributions these people will make, their innovation, their scientific breakthroughs, their art. And, you know, I don't want to suggest that children only have value as future workers, far from it. But that's a really important way in which they're valuable to all of us, even if we don't have kids. You know, we'll all benefit from those contributions. And so I think the point is that kids have a value to society that's far beyond their value to their parents alone. Hmm. We're talking about how the pandemic is dragging down birth rates. We'll have more with Eliana Docterman and Casey Buckles after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at how the pandemic is driving down birth rates. And I want to let you know that our listeners, we want to know if the pandemic is affecting your family planning decisions and why you think parents or potential parents are making the decision to delay or decline trying for kids. With us is Eliana Docterman, staff writer at Time Magazine, author of the article, Women Are Deciding Not to Have Babies Because of the Pandemic. That's bad for all of us. Casey Buckles is also with us, associate professor of economics and concurrent professor of gender studies at the University of Notre Dame. And Anna North is also with us, a senior reporter for Vox. You can join the conversation by giving us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Email your questions 
questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. Now, before the show, I spoke with Samita Mukhopadhyay, executive editor of Teen Vogue, who wrote a piece for The Atlantic about making the decision during the pandemic to be child-free and proud. And Samita had been looking pretty seriously into having a child. Let's listen. I was looking into fertility treatments, and I think, you know, I'm in my early 40s, and I had just started to really think about, you know, what would it look like to have a child on my own? I had started to talk to different people about it. And when the pandemic happened, it became, you know, really challenging to make medical appointments. And it made me also really just start to rethink, you know, watching a lot of my friends who are parents and watching what they were going through, you know, and just looking at some of the realities that I think the pandemic really shone a light on, you know, um, were those environments that I wanted to bring a child into. And, you know, I, I had to ask myself some really critical questions about whether that made sense for me or not. You also referred to parenting as an aspirational experience. What did you mean by that? And did that also factor in to your thinking right now that maybe not having a child is the way to go? There's many pressures, I think, that, you know, we navigate as we get older. And and I do think that one of them is this expectation that you're going to get married and you're going to have a family. I do think that that is part of the American dream. It's part of the narrative of getting older. And I think that I am part of a group of people that haven't kind of followed those rules, right? Like a fairly large growing group of women in their 40s that, you know, may have been more focused on their careers in the last 10 years. Um, and, you know, and this this debate is often framed as, you know, women, you know, and their naked ambition that they can't kind of move beyond and, you know, prioritize a family. For most women, that's not actually how it works. For myself and most of my friends, we were just busy doing other things and we weren't able to kind of balance having a relationship or find the right person who made sense as we were kind of going navigating those parts of ourselves and our personal development. And so I do think that there isn't a narrative yet for women and men who have kind of decided not to do the family route. And there are alternatives. Yes, absolutely. I have several friends that have had children on their own. I have several friends that have chosen not to have children, but they're still considered outliers. They're not considered the norm. And I think the norm is still this middle-class aspiration of two parents and kids. So I note that your essay was published in August, and I am wondering if it's been a little more than six months now, if your thinking has changed at all, or do you still feel very strongly that the future is too uncertain, the current environment too unsafe to make sense to have children? I still believe that, you know, and I, I never, I, I do say in the piece that my feeling is more of ambivalence. It's not necessarily a yes or a no. It's more carving out a space for that ambivalence and a narrative that's not so deeply rooted in judging women's choices. Because I don't think that it's a bad thing to have children right now. I think that it's great if people are feeling joyful and they're feeling optimistic about the future. We need that right now. We need to feel optimistic. We need to feel like there is an end in sight to this pandemic. And we have lost so much. Like, what could be better than, you know, creation? And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if more people ended up having children after this because they needed the kind of um, hope that comes from, 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 from creating life. 
Hmm, interesting. You, you said that you think that there are some people who will choose to have children. I'm curious, though, what are you hearing among just your circles and your networks? Do you find that that's more often the case, or do you find more now that the people who have wanted to be child-free feel much more strongly in that? Yeah, my my experience is the latter, that people that are child-free are feeling really good about this conviction um, and that that we are going into, you know, we're about to rebuild our society, right? Like we're about to rebuild and reemerge in the arts and in culture and like our relationships to each other. All of that is still TBD. Um, what I am hearing from friends is they feel grateful that they were not with they didn't have children during this time and that they will continue to not as we navigate whatever comes next because you know if there's a pandemic today who knows what's coming next year samita mukopadai thank you so much thank you that's samita mukopadai executive editor of teen vogue and there are a lot of things that samita was saying uh, that i want to dig into eliana dr man i know you need to leave us so i wanted to know first if there's anything that jumped out at you uh, in terms of what Samita was saying based on your reporting. Well, I definitely spoke to women who I think felt similarly in that they were watching. I spoke to a woman in Detroit who works in HR who was watching her friends have kids during this time and would be on Zoom calls with them and things were hectic, you know, and her first thought was, yeah, maybe not for us right now, because it just, it simply seems at a time when we're all taking on so much. And I can say this myself as a woman without children, I honestly don't envy my friends who do have small kids right now and are juggling teaching and childcare on top of their jobs. I don't know how they're doing it. I have so much admiration for those people. Um, But I also think that there are other people who are sort of planning for the future. I did a follow-up story to this in which I talked about how the number of women freezing their eggs went up last year. Uh, There's not a lot of data on this, but we surveyed 61 of the major clinics in the United States and 54 of those had reported big upticks in the number of women freezing their eggs during the pandemic. So I have actually spoken to a number of women who feel very similarly, um, but are trying to leave their options open because they just don't know. As we've been saying throughout this, there's just no way to sort of predict what's going to happen in the future and plan your life around it. And people are trying as best as they can. Well, Eliana Doctorman, really appreciate having you on with us today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Again, Eliana Doctorman, a staff writer for Time, author of the October piece, Women Are Deciding Not to Have Babies Because of the Pandemic. That's bad for all of us. Casey Buckles is still with us, Associate Professor of Economics and Concurrent Professor of Gender Studies at the University of Notre Dame. And Anna North is with us, Senior Reporter at Vox. And, and Anna North, one other quick point about what Samita talked about. One of the things that she she pointed out was how partly her decision in terms of deciding not to have a child and, and pursue fertility treatments was just the difficulty of getting the appointments. And it made me think more broadly about how access to health care really does affect people's ability to try for kids or have healthy kids for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, thanks so much for, for having me on the show. Um, but yes, I mean, this is a huge issue that's become, you know, only more glaring during the pandemic. I mean, um, you know, people who were already pregnant, um, you know, in the spring when the pandemic became really severe in a lot of parts of the U.S. found themselves um, trying to figure out, you know, how am I going to keep my appointments? How am I going to, you know, get checked out, see my doctor? Um, 
a lot of appointments were moved to telehealth, um, which was great for some and less great for others. Um, you know, some people felt that it was actually, um, you know, that it was actually sort of um, put a little bit more distance between them and their provider, and they liked that if they might have been someone who had faced medical racism, for example, in the past. But for others, they worried that maybe their concerns weren't being taken seriously or something did happen with their pregnancy. Maybe it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be noticed. And um, you know, there were some extreme examples. Um, there was a woman in New York um, who, um, you know, her family um, later said, you know, tried and tried to get an appointment knowing that something was wrong with her pregnancy, mm. um, wasn't able to be seen in person and ended up actually dying in childbirth. So, you know, it's oh. been this scary time for a lot of folks, um, you know, just whatever stage in their reproductive lives they're at. Yes. So that added part of it as well. Let me go to caller Jeanette in San Jose. Hi, Jeanette. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I own a business in San Jose and have two kids. They're eight and five. And, you know, we've absolutely, completely taken off the table any discussion of having more kids after the last year, just recognizing how much of a strain even having two kids are self-sufficient. I mean, it's been like having twin newborns, you know, Mm -hmm. and we're the only ones that are able to really provide that support and trying to work while we're, you know, making sure they're not failing out of school and all those other dynamics. Um, kind of the running joke in my mom's circles have been, you know, the only kids that are be born in a pandemic are firstborn children because it's just been such an overwhelming experience um, to be doing this. But, you know, for us, it's also opened up opportunity, you know, costs that we didn't have before this uh, in terms of, you know, still wanting more kids, but there's such an age gap. Now, you know, by the time we recover from, you know, mentally and economically from, the pandemic to be able to have kids, have a gestation, you know, et cetera. Mm. Um, you know, and now it's opened up conversations about maybe we, you know, now look into expanding through foster care or adoption and which is a really great need in Santa Clara County. So, um, you know, it definitely for us opened up a lot more conversations, but it's also been uh, a bit of loss in that because we had planned on, uh, you know, potentially going that route and having, um, you know, more kids of our own. So, I have to say, you are reflecting through the questions, the struggles uh, that you're going through, the hopes, a lot of what I'm hearing from families. Jeanette, thanks so much for sharing that. Let me see if I can get Brenda from Paris in here. Hi, Brenda. Hi, thank you for taking the call. Love your show. Um, I just wanted to share that um, when the pandemic hit, I was a 38-year-old woman who had been trying already for three months to conceive our third child. And despite me already being a registered nurse and kind of seeing everything that was going on, I knew that age was such a big factor that, you know, we, I didn't want to risk stop trying um, because of my age. So we successfully um, conceived in April and we delivered a healthy baby girl in December of 2020. And um, work got hard, but just the fact that I knew that I was going to be bringing life and something that I had really wanted because we had suffered a miscarriage, like that's what kind of kept us through for me and my family, my husband and my two kids, because they would see the belly grow and they would, that was the joy in our life during the pandemic. Unfortunately, um, the pandemic also did cause where once the baby was born and I'm currently on maternity leave, I can't share that joy with other people in person because, you know, we're keeping safe and we can visit friends and Certain family we do visit, but very, very, very little. I wish I could expand it to cousins and friends, but I can't. So that part, the pandemic has put a damper on. Mm. But for me, the age was a big thing. I couldn't, um, despite what was going on, I couldn't stop trying. 
Well, Brenda, first, congratulations. And also really appreciate you sharing that you'd had a miscarriage um, because that's often difficult to share. But the other question I just have for you quickly is, are you basically saying that if you were younger, you probably would have waited? Possibly. I think possibly because there was so many unknowns and then especially working in the, the health care. And I actually I called my husband before I, I called in the radio and I asked him, hey, did you feel nervous? And he said no, because he we had he had a job where he was able to work from home. And in 2008, when the recession hit his industry, um, didn't really get hit. And we, we also actually we also brought a child in 2008 as well. And we managed. So I think just because, you know, we've had that experience where just things see themselves through in one way or another, I think that's what, um, why we probably weren't afraid. But for me, definitely the big thing was the age. Like, mm-hmm. I, I need to try now. Well, well, congrats again. And Casey Buckles, Brenda's raising some questions for me, which is, you know, in her case, the age was a factor in spurring her to have kids. So do you think that what we're seeing is a postponement? Like, for example, after the pandemic, we could see what uh, Samita brought up is uh, more people choosing to have children and, and having sort of a bump like after World War II. Yes. Well, I think this is one of the $10 million questions uh, as we see this pandemic baby bust and its consequences unfold over the next few years. And I actually think the last two callers, um, well, and let me say, add my congratulations to Brenda. Um, But, you know, each of them kind of took different paths there. Um, You know, we could imagine that most of these births that we expect to be missing in 2021 will show up in subsequent years, just a delay. And so, you know, that might have some small implications for people's family structure or for schools, but not really big long-term impacts. But my expectation is that certainly not all, but many of these births are going to be missed entirely because of age-related complications. Some people may not be able to conceive later on. They will have missed their window. Or there may be other families who are maybe a little on the fence about having a child or having another child. And because of this experience, they've been pushed off the fence and decided not to have a child. And for that reason, I think we will expect to see at least some permanent loss. Mm. And, you know, that really just adds to the loss that we've all experienced during this pandemic. We've lost so much time with loved ones, celebrations, life experiences, And I think for some people, that's going to include the loss of children that they wanted to have but ended up not having. Uh, It's interesting. So you're basically saying that it's more likely if you delay that you actually won't end up having the baby at all for for a certain fact, for certain reasons. Um, And Anna North, are you seeing that also play out in your reporting as well, that delay often does mean still decline in births? I mean, I think, yeah, I think there's a couple of factors at play here. Um, you know, we can think about folks who might, um, you know, might have delayed trying to conceive during the pandemic and, you know, then find that perhaps they're not able to. Um, and I think we, you know, we could also talk about folks maybe like Samita who look at this pandemic and say, you know, maybe this is not in my plans. And, and I think, um, you know, in that situation, we also have to look at sort of what this pandemic has revealed about what it's like to be a parent and have a child and even to be a child in America and sort of the resources that are available to you. I mean, it's been a time when we've seen, you know, an extraordinary number of daycare centers, for example, go out of business. Um, You know, 
we've seen a lot of childcare workers, you know, be on the front lines and be at risk and some people quitting, many more being laid off. Um, it's just really exposed how we don't actually have a nationwide robust system for caring for children in this country. And certainly I've heard from folks who look at that and say, well, you know, should I bring a child into a country that maybe doesn't value me as a parent or doesn't value, you know, the importance of taking care of my child and providing that child with high quality care. So, you know, if we talk about misbirths because of conception issues, I think, you know, we may need to talk about folks who just decide that this is not going to work for them. Yes. I mean, and Sabrina, listener Sabrina lays it bare too. Sabrina writes, who wants to work full time for unequal pay, do most or all of the housework and do most or all of the caregiving for a child. The pandemic intensified the lack of equity. It's not surprising women are opting out of the motherhood bondage trap, as Sabrina puts it. But Casey Buckles, I also think Anna North is really raising an important point, which is that in many ways, this pandemic, the result has really been both an indictment of sorts of, of our healthcare system as well as our childcare system. I think that's right. And the message from the listener, um, she used the word inequity, and that's something I've talked about before is fertility inequality. Um, we hear a lot about income inequality and wealth inequality, but one implication of those types of inequality is that there are rising demands on parents. Um, when there's a wider gap between the rich and poor, we see that parents feel more compelled to invest in their kids. They feel like they have to increase quality time, increase money spent on kids. So that makes kids more expensive in terms of both time and money and people worry that they can't afford it. And then that's exacerbated by stagnant wages for the middle class, student debt and housing prices. So, you know, I really do worry about people who want to have children and feel like they should but don't feel optimistic about their ability to provide and nurture for them. Hmm. It's almost like children are becoming a, a luxury good that only the well-off can afford. And wow. that's a real sign that our economy and society aren't as healthy as they should be. We're talking with Casey Buckles, Associate Professor of Economics and Gender Studies at Notre Dame. Anna Norris, Senior Reporter at Vox, and you, our listeners, are with us, telling us about your family planning decisions and how they've been affected by the pandemic. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how the pandemic is dragging down birth rates. We're joined by Casey Buckles, professor of economics and concurrent professor of gender studies at the University of Notre Dame, Anna North, a senior reporter at Vox. And you, our listeners, tell us, did you delay or decide not to have kids this past year? How has the pandemic affected your family planning decisions? You can call us 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum and email your questions to forum at KQED. 
org. Here are some more comments that are coming in. Megan tweets, the pandemic helped nudge us to have a third child born January 2021. The sense of our family as an isolated unit with our kids reliant on each other for peer socialization made adding a third sibling a no-brainer. And Gustavo writes similarly, just had our baby boy John Muir in Walnut Creek last night. Oh, wow, Gustavo, congrats. The virus did not affect our plans to grow our family. At the same time, Joe writes, having kids is getting harder and harder, pandemic or not. It's a little tiring to hear children as a female-only issue. By the way, it is also because men are deciding to skip the whole getting hitched and having kids. With divorce rates rising, custody nightmares, child support, college costs, etc., I'm not surprised people are opting not to have kids. I'm a single co-parent of two, and I adore them, but it's hard. I think all of these are are raising interesting points about just how we create a society that supports people of all genders in the ways they need it for whatever decision they want to make related to family planning. And and Anna North, just on this, uh, you know, just the work and childcare side and the support side, this listener writes, it'll be sad if the segment does not make use of the phrase midwife crisis. Can you talk a little bit? Do you know a little bit about what's happening there with regard to the birth rate decline? Well, sure. So, um, I mean, certainly one, you know, really fascinating aspect of this pandemic has been that it actually has increased focus on midwives and increased focus on, um, you know, the idea of out of hospital births. I mean, we saw this early in the pandemic when a lot of folks were afraid to give birth in hospitals um, due to safety concerns, um, due to potentially not being allowed to have a partner with them in the delivery room, not being allowed to have a doula with them in the delivery room. We saw more folks opting for home births and, and births at birthing centers at attended by midwives. Um, And, you know, this was also an interesting trend, um, you know, even before the pandemic. And there's been some research suggesting that midwife care, you know, could actually be really beneficial for a lot of folks in particular, could even help reduce Black maternal mortality in particular. Um, So I think, you know, one of the many things that the pandemic has has kind of asked us to reevaluate is the way that we give birth in America and the way that we support pregnant and birthing people. I think midwives can potentially be a big piece of that. And uh, we're getting a couple of questions along these lines, Casey Buckle. Stephen writes, do immigrants from Mexico and Central America tend to skew younger? And if so, would that be a smart way to compensate for our lower birth rate? Brendan writes, if we want to keep the U.S. population growing, why not do that with increased immigration instead of increased birth rates? With global overpopulation that we struggle with, this seems like a win-win. So Casey Buckles, first your reaction to that and also just more broadly, you know, what is needed to try to, say, replace the concern around younger workers? Yeah, so I'm so glad that the listeners brought this up. Um, because it's really important to understand that more babies is not the only solution here. Um, Increased immigration is another very important way that we can sustain our population and add workers. Um, And the listener is correct that immigrants do also tend to have higher birth rates than um, the native population. So that should help with the birth rate issue as well. Now, I think sometimes there is a bit of a fertility panic and I don't want to feed into that. But I do think it's really important to try to understand why fertility is falling, because it can be a symptom of other things that are happening uh, in our society, but also to think about multiple ways to address the problems that that might cause. And immigration is, of course, one of those. Well, Nick writes, eventually the population birth rate will and will need to decline. So while on an individual micro scale basis, the effects documented by your guest should concern us. 
Long term, we must assume and prepare for a reduction in population. Let me get a reaction to that from both of you. Anna North, starting with you. You know, we certainly hear from a lot of folks, I would say, especially younger people today who talk about um, potentially choosing not to have children due to climate change and just, you know, having a child, especially, um, you know, in the United States, a wealthy country, it is a big drain on worldwide resources. They have a big carbon footprint. Um, and I say this as a parent myself. Um, you know, it's it's an understandable choice. And I think one that more and more people are talking about, um, you know, I, I think we can balance, you know, these sorts of concerns with um, with our desire to sort of support people in having the families that they want to have. Um, you know, but certainly I'm, I'm hearing sort of environmental concerns as more and more of a factor in the picture when people consider whether they're wanting to have children. Casey Buckles, what do you think? Yeah. Um, you know, I think in the late 60s, there was this book, The Population Bomb by Paul and Ann Ehrlich that argued that the world's population was going to continue to grow rapidly and that all kinds of bad things would happen as a result. But we now know that as societies develop and advance, their fertility tends to fall as a result. And as more of the world is developed, we're actually seeing fertility growth slow down to the point where most projections say the world is going to reach peak occupancy sometime in the next 50 to 100 years. And after mm. that, the world will, the population will start to decline. So long term, I don't think population growth is an existential threat. Um, you know, this came up when Eliana was on the line. I also hear this concern, this question about whether we should be bringing children into the world in the middle of a climate crisis. And of course, recognizing that everyone has to make the decision that they think is best. What I always say is that I wouldn't put having fewer children in my top 10 list of top 10 things that we should be doing to try to address the crisis. And not least of all, because the cost for, of, of not having a child that you would otherwise want to have is really high. We're talking with Casey Buckles at the University of Notre Dame, Anna North, senior reporter at Vox. You, our listeners, are also with us talking about how the pandemic has affected the birth rate. This this comment from Emily, I'm curious, Emily writes, if you have thoughts on how the new child stimulus payments will affect birth rates, if at all. There is an idea that a guaranteed income floor may help parents who are on the fence about how to afford children or another child. Casey Buckles, that comment by Emily is just making me think about have we have we created new supports maybe in the um, maybe in the uh, stimulus package as Emily is alluding to that was recently passed by the Biden administration that will help people who want to have babies who make that choice as you were saying earlier. Yes. So to answer Emily's first question about what we would expect the child tax credit to do to fertility rates. And we have lots of other examples where similar programs have been impacted and are uh, implemented in other countries or in states uh, within the US. And we typically do see a small increase in fertility as a result of um, child benefits of this type. Um, you know, I, I for one am very excited about the changes to the child tax credit that were part of the American Recovery Plan, a rescue plan from President Biden. Um, just as a quick description, most most parents are going to get this benefit. They'll get three to thirty six hundred, three thousand to thirty six hundred dollars per child in monthly installments. Right now, that's temporary, but there's some optimism that that's going to become permanent. And, and it's huge in that it's not connected to work requirements. So that. I think gives families a lot more choice. If both parents want to work 
or you know, we have a single parent who wants to work that makes it more feasible by providing funds that could be used for childcare, for example. If a parent would like to stay home, it also makes that option more feasible. Um, so, you know, I would say economists and a lot of others are really excited about the potential for this child tax credit to reduce child poverty, especially if it becomes permanent. But, but I'm excited because I think it's a really significant way that we can do more to support parents who are raising kids for the benefit of all of us. You know, it says to them, we see the work that you're doing and we're going to do more, <clears throat> sorry, more to support you. Let me go to caller Supatra in the South Bay. Hi, Supatra. Hello. Yes. Uh, thank you for uh, letting me uh, you know, uh, join the conversation. I would like to um, make uh, respond to the speakers who uh, mentioned that uh, this is an indictment of our country and a system that uh, raised a question whether or not one should think about should we uh, bring a child into a country that doesn't care about motherhood or, um, you know, uh, devalue motherhood. I, I find uh, the remark to be uh, rather disturbing because I think that uh, we have to be careful about too much focus on the negative. Uh, it is true that there's a lot of things we can continue to improve, but I work as an interpreter, a freelance interpreter for low-income mothers, and I can tell you from facts that if you are a low-income mother, you get uh, all, all, all just about things from diapers, milk, everything for free and uh, medical care. On top of that, I interpret for uh, nurses, a home nurses that were sent to the home of each mother, given that uh, perhaps they can take a bus to you know to the hospital every week or every other week from a time when they found out they're pregnant until the child's hmm. two years to to not only uh, just a regular checkup, but guide them of how to, you know, what to expect and how to take care of the child at each stage. And under that kind of program, we needed to see and acknowledge that it exists in our system, it exists in our country, and therefore have a bigger and more balanced picture of whether or not are we a system or country that devalue motherhood? Is that uh, uh, is that overstated to the negative? And I, I think see. that we create a dark perspective of our system, our country. When if we look at a lot of other things, and currently a lot of companies giving mothers um, maternity leave for both mother and father, and on top of that, uh, if you. Uh, yeah. Supatra, yes, I, I'm, I'm sorry to have to interrupt you, but I just wanted to um, respond quickly in saying thank you so much for highlighting the work that you do and the support that is out there. And I actually am the one who made the comment where it wasn't so much a comment as I was quoting what I was seeing in other pieces where it really did feel like overall, though, that there's almost the situation where we actually do support and sometimes almost expect uh, as our uh, guest Samita was pointing out that people should have children, um, but that paradoxically, we might not always provide enough support for that decision in this country. But I'd love to see Casey Buckles, if you have a response to Supatra as well. And thanks, Supatra, again for the call. Yes, well, I think the caller is correct that we do have uh, different systems of support for families and particular low-income families in this country. Um, you know, some of that has come through private corporations and employers and work, um, which 
you know, is, is nice for people who work in those firms. But I think it's a bit of a, you know, you can get a double whammy. If you lose your job, um, then you could potentially lose your insurance and lose those benefits just at a time where you need them the most. And also a lot of those uh, benefit programs are, you know, they have pretty onerous requirements for applying for them, or there are contingencies that are designed to either incentivize work or incentivize certain types of care or certain types of investments. Um, so something like the child tax credit, you know, turns the responsibility and the decision making back to the parents, to the family a bit more and says, we're going to give you some resources and you can use them in the way that makes the most sense for your family. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how the pandemic has affected birth rates. And let me read some more comments. Pam writes, my 30-year-old daughter is scared to death to take the vaccine because she hears stories about becoming infertile. She's an intelligent person who generally does her due diligence to research this. But this fear is real. She's also had to put off her wedding plans because of the pandemic, which holds off moving ahead to have children. Zoe writes, my husband and I were already on the fence about having our own children before COVID struck due to family and personal health history, financial health, etc. But once the pandemic occurred, we watched our friends struggle with balancing their children's jobs and lives in general. And it was so excruciating to watch. The women especially seemed to have difficulties. We realized how much we'd been saying, thank God we don't have kids during 2020. And that was a big consideration when we decided not to have our own biological children. And Alexis writes, thanks for using child free. Perhaps the birth dearth isn't just about despair, but also about the joy of finding other ways for women to create meaning, find hope, make families and live fulfilling lives beyond childbearing. And Anna North, this is something that we also heard in, in uh, my conversation with Sumita Mukhopadhyay, just a rejecting the expectation to marry and have a family. Um, and, you know, one of the things that she writes in her piece for The Atlantic that I mentioned was that she she writes, one legacy, the pandemic may be less judgment of the child free. And I'm wondering if you think that that is also, or how much you think that is contributing to a decline in birth rate? I certainly hope that a legacy of the pandemic um, is less judgment of the child free and, you know, more acceptance of lots and lots of ways that people can make families and can make close relationships. Um, you know, certainly I've seen during this time just a lot of reevaluation of, you know, how do we get support and how do we get meaning in our lives? It's a time when, you know, many people have been very isolated and sort of isolated into their households and, and trying to figure out, you know, how do I how do I get that kind of human connection and the kind of meaning that I ordinarily would get from social life? I, I think that's really forced a lot of, you know, a lot of rethinking around um you know, not just family formation, but just um, just how, you know, how people create, um, you know, the sort of webs of interconnection that I think maybe we didn't have to think about as much before the pandemic started. Um, and so I certainly hope that, you know, as and if we begin to heal from this, that having children isn't something that is a pressure and is something that, um, you know, is a right and something that people can do and something that we work to reduce inequality around. Um, but certainly, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for stories like Samita's and, um, you know, for folks who I think are becoming more vocal around the validity of a child-free lifestyle and, and how that can be just as meaningful. Well, Helena writes, I'm a Hispanic woman and have one kid already and I'm pregnant and it's challenging to meet the obligations of motherhood and work, but so far so good. We are not rich, but we are happy and grateful. I think one of the things that I 
hear in this conversation from you, Anna North, and also from you, Casey Buckles, is again, just this question of how we create a country, a society that supports people in the ways they need it for whatever decision they want to make related to having a child. Casey Buckles. Yes, I agree. I've heard that throughout our our conversation as well. And I'm really glad that you included Samita's experience and that of other listeners who have decided to be child-free and that's the thing that makes the most sense for them. And the pandemic has even maybe validated that choice for them. Um, But, you know, I think there are also, we're hearing from a lot of people that the uncertainty of the pandemic, the economic conditions that have come along with the pandemic have meant that they're not able to have what they otherwise would have wanted. Um, And those are conditions, you know, that showed up in the pandemic, but are also have been a feature of our society for many years and have contributed to the decline in fertility that we saw even before this. So, you know, what, what I hope for is that this pandemic has given us a moment to stop and ask, what do families really need? And what can we collectively do to support them in that, whatever their choices are? Hmm. Well, Zinnia writes, my daughter and her fiance of over 10 years were already hesitant to have children because of mental health issues that run in our family and concerns with impacts to further climate change due to overpopulation. After becoming victims of the CZU lightning complex fire, losing everything with with their worst climate change fears realized, and then adding a pandemic, they shared with us their decision is solidified. We will be furry family grandparents. Well, Casey Buckles, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Casey Buckles, Associate Professor of Economics and Gender Studies at the University of Notre Dame, and Anna North, Senior Reporter for Vox. And I also want to thank our listeners for their questions, comments, and stories. And thanks to Blanca Torres for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.